You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Let's get started. Welcome to The Bloodline with LLS. I'm Elissa. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be speaking to Mirnell Pitnaik, a physician scientist and professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. His research interests include understanding the development of blood cancers, such as chronic myelomonocytic leukemia, or CMML, myelodysplastic syndromes, or MDS, and acute leukemias. Dr. Petnayak is the principal investigator on CMML trials and focuses much of his research on studying genetic changes in patients with CMML and developing novel therapeutic approaches to treat this disease. Welcome, Dr. Petnayak. Thank you very much for having me. So our episode today is on chronic myelomonocytic leukemia, or CMML. Could you share what that is? Yeah, chronic myelomonocytic leukemia is essentially a cancer of the blood and the bone marrow that is commonly encountered in individuals as they age. It is a rare disease and is an orphan entity, so there's not much known about it, but with dedicated research being done in this field, there's a lot more information that is available. Now, chronic myelomonocytic leukemia typically starts off with patients having an increase in a special type of white blood cell called as monocytes. Monocytes are white blood cells that play an important role in the body's defense against different organisms. It also has a role in tumor surveillance. But when they become cancerous, there is an abnormal excessive production of these cells. And over time, this begins to harm the body and affect how the body functions It leads to bone marrow dysfunction. Patients become quite symptomatic. And then this has an inherent tendency to progress to acute myeloid leukemia or acute myelomonocytic leukemia, which is often very difficult to treat. And we've also heard the term juvenile myelomonocytic leukemia or JMML. Is that the same thing as CMML? That's a great question. JMML or juvenile myelomonocytic leukemia is often considered a pediatric counterpart to myeloproliferative versions of CMML. However, they are not the same thing. JMML is exclusively seen in pediatric patients. It usually occurs within the first decade of life. More than 90% of patients with JMML have mutations in a genetic pathway called a RAS pathway. These children usually present with very high white blood cell counts with excessive monocytes in the blood. They tend to have enlarged spleens and livers, infiltration into organs. And in many cases, if this is not treated aggressively or patients are not transplanted, it can be fatal. And so the genetic composition, the age of onset, 
make these two entities different, but they share a lot of overlaps, which especially on the adult side, we have now begun to investigate how can we find treatment modalities that may be applicable to both, given that both entities are so rare and it's hard to find research funding or even pharmaceutical companies interested in doing trials for patients with rare diseases. But as I've often said, rare diseases are not rare for the patients affected by them. And so it becomes almost an ethical obligation for us to make sure that they are not neglected. That would be wonderful to have a single medication or treatment that would be applicable to both. And we'll get into some treatments a little bit later on. Now, there are different subtypes of CMML, correct? Could you share what those are and does it affect the prognosis? Yeah, it does. And this is a very important distinction. The most important classification of CMML actually is understanding whether this is a myelodysplastic subtype or a myeloproliferative subtype. And this can be done quite easily by looking at the total white blood cell count. If it's greater than or equal to 13,000 consistently, then it's more likely myeloproliferative, whereas If it's less than 13,000, they're usually dysplastic CMML subtypes. This has a lot of biological basis and there's clinical implications. For example, in a very large study of over 1,000 patients that we published in Nature Communications in 2021, we showed that the proliferative CMML subtype, the median survival is less than two years compared to the dysplastic subtype where the survival can be in the range of 36 to 40 months. Also, the proliferative subtype, the rates of leukemic transformation are higher than the dysplastic subtype. And in that paper, we very elaborately show that there is a lot of genetic, transcriptomic, and biological basis for which this classification, in my opinion, is the most important classification we can use to help patients better understand the tempo of their disease and their overall outlook. Mm -hmm. Sure. It is kind of interesting that the World Health Organization does consider CMML and MPN as well as an MDS. I haven't seen that before. Is this one of the only diagnoses that has that type of distinction? Actually, it is not. There are a few disorders that come under this category, what is called as the MDS-MPN overlap neoplasms. And the reason that was given is because they share features of MDS and features of maloproliferative neoplasms. The most common is chronic myelomonocytic leukemia, but there are other entities such as atypical chronic myeloid leukemia, which is also called as MDS-MPN with neutrophilia. There is MDS-MPN with ring sideroblasts and thrombocytosis, and then MDS-MPN not otherwise specified. So these Mm -hmm. entities come under this overlap category. And until recently, even juvenile myelomonocytic leukemia was considered an overlap neoplasm. But in 2022, the WHO and the ICC, there were two classification systems. Both have moved it out into either myeloproliferative neoplasms or in pediatric neoplasms arising in germline situations. And are there chromosomal abnormalities or genetic mutations in CMML like we see in some other leukemias? Yes, absolutely. There are two levels of genetic analysis that we do in CMML. The first one is cytogenetics, where we do chromosome and fish studies on bone marrow specimens. 
Cytogenetic abnormalities are seen in up to 30%. So a third of patients will have some kind of chromosomal abnormalities. Most commonly, the abnormality that we see is an extra copy of chromosome 8 or trisomy 8. There are other chromosomal abnormalities, but none of them are specific to CMML. They can be seen in a variety of myeloid neoplasms and bone marrow failure states. There are two risk stratification systems based on chromosomes, the Spanish risk stratification system, and then the Mayo Clinic French risk stratification system, which can help understand how aggressive or not these chromosome abnormalities are. But what really is ubiquitous in these patients are somatic gene mutations, which we detect on a test called as next-generation sequencing or NGS. This test is very important. I know that there are some insurance companies that give pushback, but I cannot emphasize how important it is to move towards a universal coverage for sequencing and diagnosis. Mutations that define the landscape in CMML largely occur around a set of eight or nine genes. The most common is a gene called TET2, T-E-T2, followed by ASXL1. SRSF2 is the third most common, and then the others are signaling mutations, such as in the RAS pathway, occasionally JAK2, SETPP1, RUNX1, and others. Now, important to remember that none of these mutations are specific to a diagnosis of CMML. They can be seen in various other myeloid neoplasms and even non-myeloid states. So a diagnosis of CMML has to be made clinically based on morphology with sequencing and cytogenetic data as adjunct but not on its own. And the next generation sequencing, is this something that would measure minimal or measurable residual disease for this particular diagnosis? No, the type of next generation sequencing that is available for frontline use is not a MRD assay. This usually, depending on the lab, detects somatic variants between 2 to 5% or higher variant allele fraction. The role of measurable residual disease in CMML is undefined, like in acute myeloid leukemia and acute lymphoblastic leukemia, where there are clear paradigms. I think there's still a lot of work needed to be done in this space to see if it's even relevant or not. Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier that CMML can turn into acute myeloid leukemia or AML. Are there similar genetic mutations or chromosomal abnormalities as AML? Yeah. So this is a great question. The AML that arises from an underlying CMML is usually monocytic in nature and does not share the same genetic landscape or chromosomal landscape that de novo AML does. So de novo AML mutations in NPM1, FLT3 are common subtypes such as core binding factor leukemia because of inversion 16 or translocation 821 are common. These are very infrequent in CMML that transform to AML. These patients typically have the same genetic structure that the baseline CMML does, and we had published this in our Nature Communications paper. Usually it is because of acquisition of RAS pathway mutations or increments in existing RAS pathway mutations or complex somatic copy number changes in chromosomes. Uh But that being said, only about 50% of patients in our cohort that transformed from CMML to AML had a genetic basis for explaining why this evolution occurred. Okay. It goes on to show you that there are many other factors, including epigenetic factors, 
or changes in non-coding regions that may be playing an important role. And so this yet remains to be elucidated. Oh, that's very interesting. Now, what is the incidence rate of CMML? You mentioned earlier that it's a rare disease. Yeah, it's highly underreported and underdiagnosed. And so if you go back and look at literature, people estimate at four cases per 100,000 population, but I think it's more than that. I think a lot of cases of CMML are unfortunately diagnosed as MDS, so they're just put into MDS or NPN. And that's where CMML has suffered over decades. People have seen it as a rare disease, infrequent, and they've just tried to lump it when there's clear biological reason not to do that. In my opinion, this hasn't been proven yet. CMML probably has the same incidence as myeloproliferative neoplasms, but the prevalence is lower because unlike patients with MPN who live longer, CMML patients, because of their transformation to AML and usually high mortality associated with AML, don't live that long. So it seems like the pool of patients is shorter, but the prevalence may be the same as MPN, especially myelofibrosis. Okay. And what are the common signs and symptoms for CMML? Yeah, the signs and symptoms, I like to approach it depending on whether they're myelodysplastic or myeloproliferative. Myeloproliferative CMML patients can be very symptomatic. They can have drenching night sweats, fatigue, weight loss. They usually have progressive splenomegaly, which leads to early satiety. They don't feel like eating. They can have fullness in the left upper quadrant. They can have pain related to splenic infarctions. They can develop hyperleukocytosis with increased uric acid levels that can cause gout or urate kidney stones. And eventually there can be involvement of the skin. There can be coexisting skin lesions from related conditions. Whereas the myelodysplastic, they tend to be more anemic and thrombocytopenic. So they have anemia-related symptoms such as fatigue, exertional dyspnea. They can become transfusion dependent soon and needing either red blood cell or platelet transfusions. And because of low and abnormal platelets, bruising or mucocutaneous bleeding can predominate. So this is kind of the spectrum of symptoms that patients can manifest with. Sure. And a lot of those are common to a lot of different disorders or even other blood cancers. Correct. I know that you alluded to this earlier, but how is the MML really diagnosed? A lot of what I have spoken is non-specific, correct? So you can have this in not just heme malignancies, it could be from cancer in general. But when you start coming in with these symptoms and your blood tests start showing that your monocyte counts are raised and they're sustained. So for more than three months, they're increased at least in general above 1,000. But now the recent criteria are saying that even above 500 without reactive causes. So monocytosis most often is not cancerous. You know, viral infections, autoimmunity, drugs, all of them can cause monocytosis. So if you see a high monocyte count, 90% of the times it's not going to be cancerous very important message to get across to the viewership. But if it's sustained, you've ruled out other causes, then the suspicion for CMML is high. And that's what then should lead to testing such as 
flow cytometry, bone marrow, sequencing, and all of that put together once it satisfies what we call the diagnostic criteria that organizations such as the World Health Organization have put forward, then we can make an established diagnosis of CMML. Now, let's discuss the current treatments. But first, we know some patients are put on active monitoring, also known as watch and wait. Why would some patients go with that treatment route versus medication right away? I'll say two things. One is, at least in my practice, the paradigm that I love to follow is that we should not make the cure of disease more grievous than the endurance Mm -hmm. of the same. And number two is wait and watch for a physician most often translates into wait and worry for the patients. You have to balance these two things. Now, because we don't have a curative therapy for CMML, that is why there are several patients that are asked to wait until their disease progresses to the point where treatments are needed. If we had a cure, we would have not done this. We do not have a cure. Whatever treatments exist are clearly suboptimal. They all have side effects. They can make things worse. They can reduce quality of life and increase morbidity and mortality. And hence, in life, like any other decision, which is a risk-benefit balance, until there are indications to treat, we do not treat patients. Now, there are certain issues that we are looking at very carefully. The higher the monocyte count goes in the blood and the longer it's present, we have started noticing that monocytes produce a chemical called lysozyme. And this lysozyme can cause kidney damage. And so we're now weighing into the caveats of how much of a high white blood cell count is actually okay physiologically. Should we be cutting back? This concept is called permissive leukocytosis. And myself with other investigators, we're trying to define what would be limits of saying, okay, we're safely waiting and watching versus maybe we need to do something. Right. And the other current treatments, do the different subtypes, like you're mentioning, if one is the MDS versus the MPN, are the treatments different? The US FDA has approved three agents for CMML management. These are all called hypermethylating agents or DNA methyltransferase inhibitors. They're drugs like azacitidine, decidabine, and now there's an oral formulation of decidabine combined with a cytidine deaminase inhibitor called sedazuridine. Now, these drugs were largely approved in phase three trials that were done for MDS. Oh. And they included a handful of patients with CMML, all of whom had dysplastic CMML. So there's no good data prospectively done to show that these drugs are actually effective in prolonging overall survival in CMML patients. And the French, led by Rafael Itzikson, just published a very important CMML study in JCO. This trial is called the Dakota study. And what they did is they took monoproliferative CMML patients and they randomized them to receive either decidabine, which is a hypermethylating agent, or hydroxyurea, which is a very old, non-specific drug that just reduces blood counts. And they powered the study for event-free survival and found that on conclusion of the study, there was no difference in event-free survival between decidabine or hydroxyurea. Mm -hmm. And although they were not powered for overall survival, they could not show any survival advantage at all. So while decidabine did delay 
AML progression in patients or had higher complete response rates, this was offset by a higher mortality to decidabine. Patients were dying because of complications related to the drug. And so at the end, it evened out and showed no difference. In our experience, there are subsets of CMML patients that do well on drugs like decidabine. These are usually dysplastic CMML patients. And we have published in 2019 in a journal called Leukemia, where we showed those who have the TET2 mutation without the ASXL1 mutation have the best responses. So we use a very precision medicine-guided approach in treating our patients with CMML. We do not believe in the paradigm that one size fits all. We approach every individual uniquely, and we make sure that we balance quality of life with quantity of life and make their journey with CMML dignified, compassionate, and respectful. So with the ones that are more closely related to MPNs, we know that with MPNs, a lot of times they're really just trying to help with the side effects and the symptoms of the disease itself. Is that similar to CMML treatment that we're really trying to deal with the symptoms? Unfortunately, because we don't have any disease-modifying drug yet, that is the truth. So we use hydroxyurea to control the count, reduce the spleen size, There are trials being done using JAK inhibitors, so drugs like roxolitinib, which are approved for myeloproliferative neoplasms, not yet for CMML, but the trial data looks encouraging. But at Mayo Clinic, for example, we are constantly developing new clinical trials for these patients. So right now we have a very interesting trial, MC210807, which uses an oral PLK1 inhibitor for patients with proliferative CMML who don't tolerate hydroxyurea or decidabine. We hope that trials like this would be innovative and disease-modifying as we move forward. That's great. So since CMML is a chronic disease, what can you do to manage the side effects and improve quality of life for the patient? I think quality of life is paramount. It's not just merely existing, but it's living with some kind of quality that patients can subscribe to. We work hard to try and improve symptoms. For example, if they have drenching night sweats or they have spleen-related symptoms, how can we manage that? If they have anemia as a dominant problem, could we give certain agents that improve their hemoglobin level? If they have pruritus or if they have deep bone pains, how can we work to ameliorate that? And in CMML, about 30% of patients have autoimmune manifestations. They often end up with rheumatologists without any good answer. Using disease-modifying agents that may epigenetically reduce the degree of inflammation has also been an approach that we have tried. So yes, our focus, till we find that elusive disease-modifying agent or group of agents is on quality of life, Now, I must remind you that there are subsets of younger patients with CMML who are fit. We know they have high-risk disease, so getting them to see a bone marrow transplanter and looking at allogenic stem cell transplant is an important part. Mm -hmm. However, since the median age at which these patients are diagnosed is 73 to 74, a lot of them are older, they have comorbidities and are not very good transplant candidates. I would say the bulk of patients are not transplant candidates to start with. Could transplant be curative for the younger population? 
Yes, I've been doing this for 15 years now. I have long-term patients who are now more than a decade out after allogenic stem cell transplant from CMML who have no relapse or recurrence of disease. So it is like it is in other diseases like AML, aplastic anemia, MDS. The problem is it's by no means a perfect modality. It still has high mortality and morbidity, especially with graft-versus-host disease. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of encouraging changes in transplant. The post-transplant cyclophosphamide, the reduced rates of GVHD, the use of haploidentical donors, drugs such as abatacept for mismatched transplants. So there is optimism that we may be able to transplant a larger number of patients with time. That's wonderful. Yeah. And I know that you've mentioned clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Any emerging treatments in clinical trials that you are excited about at this time? Yeah, I'm always excited. I, <laughs> I, I feel it's, important, you know, it's important to be optimistic. We ourselves are looking at three compounds. So one is the PLK1 inhibitor that's already open at Mayo Clinic, MC210807. We're very close to opening a bromo domain P300 epigenetic inhibitor. This is uh, BRD4 P300 in collaboration with a company called Epigenetics. And this drug, we believe, will have a lot of activity against ASXL1 mutant CMML, which is such a high-risk CMML with patients doing very poorly. We're also in collaborations looking at a cytokine receptor called CCR2 to see if that could be a therapeutic target. We have a very nice collaboration with other colleagues at Moffitt Cancer Center, at Gustave Roussy in France, and we're looking at inhibiting JAK stat pathway. We're looking at splicing modulation, a target called as CLEC, CLK, CLEC1, DERK1. So there's a lot coming up. And I also want to thank the Leukemia Lymphoma Society for a very exciting RFA opportunity specifically dedicated to CMML, which has really galvanized a lot of us working in the field of CMML to organize ourselves, organize trials, organize a central core, and really change how we approach this disease. I think the disservice that this disease has been subjected to by being combined with MDS and MPN needs to end. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Petnik, for joining us today. Uh, I think this was a wonderful discussion on CMML. And like you said, it's a rare disease, but it does matter so much to the patients and, of course, their loved ones as well. So we really appreciate you coming on today and sharing all about the exciting treatments potentially on the way and where we can progress with CMML. I have one last comment. I really want to express my heartfelt gratitude to all the patients with CMML. When I started the CMML program at Mayo Clinic 15 years ago, we barely had 50 patients that had come and been evaluated here. Today, our institutional biobank is up to 750. And this is all because of patients traveling from all across, not just North America, but the globe coming to seek expertise, but at the same time, the benevolence and altruism of saying that, okay, you can have my bone marrow sample, you can have my blood sample for studies. This has defined why we are today doing a podcast dedicated on CMML when for several years, this entity was either lumped into MDS or MPN. So every single patient that has traveled, come to us, come to see me in particular, 
I want to tell them that I am very grateful and will always remain grateful. That is so wonderful. And we really do love that you brought up clinical trials and then brought that up as well. It is so important for patients to participate in clinical trials for themselves and then for others and really progressing that research. We'll have information on clinical trials in the show notes. But again, thank you so much, Dr. Pitnick, for joining us today. And thank you to everyone listening today. The Bloodline with LLS is one part of the mission of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society to improve the quality of lives of patients and their families. Did you know that you can get more involved with the Bloodline podcast? Be sure to check out our subscriber lounge where you can gain access to exclusive content, discuss episodes with other listeners, make suggestions for future topics, or share your story to potentially be featured as a future guest. You will also receive an email notification for each new episode. Join for free today at thebloodline.org forward slash subscriber lounge. In addition to the lounge, we could use your feedback to help us continue to provide engaging content for all people affected by cancer. We would like to ask you to complete a brief survey that can be found in the show notes or at thebloodline.org. This is your opportunity to provide feedback and suggested topics that will help so many people. We would also like to know about you and how we can serve you better. The survey is completely anonymous and no identifying information will be taken. However, if you would like to contact LLS staff, please email thebloodline at lls.org. We hope this podcast helped you today. Stay tuned for more information on the resources that LLS has for you or your loved ones who have been affected by cancer. Have you or a loved one been affected by a blood cancer? LLS has many resources available to you. Financial support, peer-to-peer connection, nutritional support, and more. We encourage patients and caregivers to contact our information specialists at 1-800-955-4572 or go to lls.org forward slash patient support. You can find more information on chronic myelomonocytic leukemia at lls.org forward slash leukemia. We also have clinical trial support at lls.org forward slash ctsc. All of these links will be found in the show notes or at thebloodline.org. Thank you again for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Bloodline so you don't miss an episode. We look forward to having you join us next time. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.